This is a happy psalm. Psalm 20, after many psalms of struggle, is a happy psalm. We are concluding our reflection and our meditations on the psalms for the summer with Psalm 20. This is where we're going to pause until next summer. And it's, it's a happy psalm in light of the fact that it's actually a psalm that anticipates adversity. You still have that tension there, as you do in many of the psalms. It's a happy psalm. It's a psalm of blessing, of benediction. But it, you, as you keep reading the psalm, it's a, they're preparing for more adversity, for more struggle. Now, in our own life, think about this. For the last few weeks, we have watched hurricanes blitz our part of the world, haven't we? I would say just in, in the last month, in recent days and weeks, some of you have been introduced to new professors and new teachers, new classes, new schedules. Some of you have been introduced to new employers, maybe. Maybe you're in transition and you have a new employer. Maybe you have welcomed a, another person into your home for various reasons. Or, or you are in a new phase of life and you are now just reeling, just reeling from a new list of expectations that have been placed upon you, new realities, new challenges, maybe some daunting that you are now facing. And there's only so much you can prepare. You can prepare for a hurricane, but you can only, get, you can only be so prepared. Uh, you can prepare for changes in your life, whether it's school or work or relationships or struggle or sufferings, but again, you can only be so prepared. But do you want to be prepared? You want to be prepared in life for adversity. Now, you may be saying, well, how can how, the hurricanes are a great example? How can, you, how can you really be prepared for adversity? And I get it. There's a lot of stuff in life, a lot of factors you have no control over, can't anticipate. So you can only be so prepared pragmatically, practically. Yes, I get that. What I mean is, do you want to be prepared for adversity in the sense of do you want to live a proactive life as opposed to a reactive life? Do you want to live a life where you are better prepared to embrace unexpected adversity and trials and difficult people? Or do you want to just live your life reactively, just kind of responding to one fire after another and feeling like you're not making any headway and you just keep putting out fires in your life? Do you want to live proactively or do you want to stay a reactive person primarily? If you want to live a proactive life, if you want to be, to the best of your own ability, prepared for adversity, you need a prayer life. You need a deep prayer life. There's a reason why we're focusing on the Psalms every summer, after everybody's schedules kind of ease up a bit. Because if you want to live a proactive life where you're prepared for adversity as far as you are able, you need a deep prayer life. We all do. And actually, a prayer life specifically that conditions you, that conditions and trains you through prayer to make God the object of your trust and to make God the cause of your confidence. And today, as we look at Psalm 20, I want to talk to you about your leaders and your God and your identity. Because you're going to see all three ideas develop in Psalm 20. Your leaders, your God, and your identity as you think about preparing for adversity. Now, leaders can, I think you would agree, leaders can inspire 
and embody hope in all of us. That's, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Leaders, people can inspire in us hope and in a sense can embody uh, the collective fabric of our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations and, and our healthy expectations. Good leaders, leaders of integrity can do that. Israel's life, ancient Israel's life, was, was really embodied. The, the nation's life was embodied in the king's life, in God's Messiah, in God's anointed. And, and especially as you read the Old Testament, Israel's life, its past, its present, its future was very much embodied in the life of David. The hope of the people collectively, the identity of the people, really embodied in the life of David. Think about, as Americans, just think about the grief over losing leaders like Lincoln and, and John F. Kennedy. Uh, think of losing Martin Luther King Jr. And, and the, the, the great grief over losing leaders like that reveals just how much hope people put in, in leaders, especially good leaders. How much hope and expectation people can place in one individual who's placed in leadership. I think to better understand Israel's relationship to its king, I think in my own lifetime of Princess Diana's death. Uh, Americans, we ha- I think we have a hard time understanding culturally the plight of the ancient Israelites because we, we, we are not under a monarchy ourselves. We have never been. Uh, our, our nation's identity in its start was because we didn't want that. Uh, I think we have to confess we're a bit culturally removed, therefore, from looking at the ancient Israelites, finding hope, positive hope, healthy hope in a king, in a monarch. Nonetheless, I want to think about it because when Princess Diana died, she was no longer a part of the royal family. But the, the social psyche, the national identity of the British people was dismantled, was unraveled by the death of one person. Do you remember? Hard for us to relate to. Nonetheless, I think it's an important thing to consider. Such was the national identity and hope of ancient Israel embodied in one individual, in the anointed one, in the Messiah, in their king. So in verses 1 through 5, you see what, what's portrayed in verses 1 through 5 is, is the people offer a benediction. The people offer a blessing to their king. It starts in verse 1, where they say to him, they sing to him, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. They go on to, to sing in verses 4 and 5, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And then finally, concluding in verse 9, they sing out, they cry out, O Lord, save the king. Now, it appears that the king and his army were preparing for battle. We don't know the bio, bio, biographical situation for this psalm. But it, you look at words like banners and chariots and horses. Looks like the king was getting ready for battle. And so this is like a pep rally. Envision Psalm 20 as, as a song, a prayer that was com- composed for pep, pep rally. We don't live too far away from Westminster High School. And on certain nights, we can hear the marching band um, wail out tunes for their pep rally. Right? We can even, if things get really, uh, 
the football team doesn't always inspire a whole lot of hope. But, but if things get really exciting, you can even, from our house, hear the cheering. Okay? It's a pep rally. Think of this as, think of it as a pep rally where, where the people are stoking up their king and his warriors to go into battle, right? They're cheering him on. They're, actually, they're celebrating him, right? Read it, read more closely. They're celebrating their leader and they're praying for him. Humans just seem, oh, I don't know, compelled. Human beings just seem wired, to want to hope in somebody. Human beings just kind of seem compelled to invest a great amount of hope in leaders, in their heads, whether it's of a family or a school or a sports team or a nation. You just seem compelled to, put, to invest a lot of emotion and expectation in leaders. Even when we in America have discarded royalty and nobility, we have created our own celebrities. But Psalm 20 is maybe the purest expression of a healthy hope projected upon a leader. Notice I said a healthy hope uh, because you don't see in Psalm 20 an unrealistic hope. You don't see a false hope. God alone must become the object of your faith. It's okay, to put, it's okay to invest hope and expectations in people, but God alone must become the object of your trust. So yeah, Psalm 20 is a beautiful example of a people's solidarity, of a people's support for their leader. Do you, you see that today in politics, in government? Have you ever seen that? There's a lot of enthusiasm and solidarity and support of the king. But Psalm 20 is an even brighter portrayal of trust in the people's God to counsel them. In God to defend them. In God to deliver them and their leader. Verses 6 through 8, some scholars think, is no longer the people's blessing upon the king, but the king's response and reply back to them. Think about it like a, like a pep rally. The leaders, bless, the leaders bless their king and the king replies in verses 6 through 8. And this is what the king says in verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust. You can see a leader saying this. Remember everybody, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We have fighter jets, and we have drones, and we have tanks, and, and, and it, our military use, employs these weapons. And, and it inspires confidence if you're on the right side of those tanks and those fighter jets, um, and fear if you're on the wrong side of them. Now, horses, cavalry, think ancient times, even think just in our own civil war. Horses are intimidating creatures. If you've ever seen the NYPD horses and how just by their presence alone, they can control an, a, an enormous amount of people just by their presence. Or think of the riders of Rohan when they instilled fear in the orcs of Mordor, right? When they rode out 
in mass on their horses. The chariots, now the chariots they're speaking about, if they're the chariots of iron that are mentioned in Joshua 17 and and Judges chapter 1, these were chariots with scythes on them. These are blades that, that were attached to the axles of the chariots and they could just mow infantry down like a lawnmower going over grass. So chariots and horses to the ancients uh, were, were mighty weapons of war. Now, this is interesting because the king and the people in their right mind, and at least in this psalm, they're in their right mind. They may have remembered what Moses told the Israelites centuries before, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is very interesting. Listen to what God said through Moses to the Israelites. He anticipated a day would come where they didn't want him alone to be their king. God said through Moses, I know a day's going to come where you're not going to want me for your king. You're not going to be satisfied with me as your king. You're going to ask for a human king. Okay, I'll give you one. But here's a few exceptions. And Moses said, he must not, talking about a future king, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Just to pause there for a second. It's interesting how Moses brought together the concepts of riches and extramarital sensuality and military might. He brought them together to say they are the bane of leadership. Think of Washington. Sex, military power, and riches. We have to pray for our capital, which isn't too far away from us. Now, back to what Moses was saying. He goes on to say, and when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, listen to this, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Moses went on to say that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So you see that Israel's hope in its king was contextualized by their faith in God. It's okay to hope in a leader. But it's got to be tempered by your trust in your creator. Our hope in leadership has to be informed and checked and balanced by our trust in God alone. So as you wait for FEMA to respond to national disasters as you expect your elected officials to represent you and your needs in government, as you think about how you need to rely on a parent or an employer or a teacher, or you think about how these leaders in your life or these heads in your life have let you down, as you consider all of this, you have to practice, you have to condition yourself through prayer to realign your expectations. You have to realign your expectations of people, especially your leaders, and you have to realign your expectations of God. Leaders can inspire us and protect us and work for us and warn us, but only God guides history. Only God governs nature. Only God changes hearts, the psalmists knew. And that's how you prepare for adversity. That's how you live proactively expecting challenges and conflicts and adversities in your life by correcting through prayer your expectations. 
on a regular basis. You live a life of prayer in which you correct your expectations. Now, in verse 5, the people say, May we shout for joy over your salvation, singing to the king. You know, when our expectations are rightly aligned, when we, when, when we distinguish people from God and what, what they're capable of doing, what they can and cannot do, we distinguish leaders, human leaders, from our God, we rightly align our expectations, well, now our cynicism and our skepticism begins to fade. And our joy begins to increase because we've changed our expectations. Our expectations are more in line with reality. So we can expect God to work in people as, as the Israelites did. They expected God to save, to deliver their king from battle. They expected it and they rejoiced in anticipation for their king's deliverance, and that's what we can do. When our cynicism and skepticism and bitterness goes down and our joy and thankfulness and contentment begin to rise up, we can expect God to work in people, and we can rejoice when he does work in people, and we can rejoice when he works in culture, and when he works in our town and in our city and in government. We can rejoice. So you have to stop making people the unreliable objects of your misplaced trust. You have to stop making your leaders or people in your life unreliable objects who cannot fulfill your deepest trust. When, when David, when their kings sinned big time, when you, when you read 2 Samuel, you see when David messed up big time and he broke basically every single one of the Ten Commandments. And when he repented... When he prayed to God, it's recorded in Psalm 51. So probably two years from now, two summers from now, we'll get to Psalm 51. Two or three summers from now. One of the things he said in his confession in Psalm 51 was, he said this to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why did he pray that way? Why, why did David say something like that? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because he had lost it. He had lost the joy. Not, not just had lost his joy. Not that he was just not a happy person anymore or a thankful person anymore. What he was saying was, God, the reason I'm in the predicament I'm in is because your salvation has not been my greatest joy lately. My trust in you has not been my greatest trust. And that's why I'm in a mess right now. So restore to me my greatest joy, which can only be you. Your salvation. He had become consumed in the worries of his life, in the, tre the treasures of his life, in, in the perks and privileges of being the king. That, that's where his hope turned to. And he lost his first joy. So you have to ask yourself, are you trusting in your conventional modern day chariots and horses um, while just giving God lip service if you're a Christian? Do you, do you say, God, help me, I need you, but that's just lip service and you're really not trusting him? We often want God to bless us, but we often want God to bless us without really wanting God. You ever just want God to bless you, but you're really not interested in him? You treat him like a genie? You use him selfishly? You know, that when, when our plans don't go well, when people give up on us, when what we want, we don't get, we get frustrated, not only with people, but let's admit it. We get frustrated with God. We get bitter with God for not 
not playing along, cooperating with our plans, giving us what we want, we get frustrated. Well, why do we get frustrated? We get frustrated because he's not what we wanted in the first place. We get frustrated because we don't get the things we want. That was where we thought our joy would be in. That's what our greatest confidence was in or our greatest trust. And that's where the bitterness comes from. People may and can embody our hopes, but should never command our ultimate trust. That's the balance when we think about leaders. Otherwise, otherwise you will know little joy in your life. And, and, and you'll just harbor lots of bitterness. Your sense of identity determines what you trust in. Your sense of identity determines who you're going to trust in. And this is what I mean by that. Look at verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's interesting because we don't just use names as incantations to get what we want. And that's not what, that's not what Psalm 20 is talking about. It's not like the name of God had some kind of magic power that would make everything okay. Just shout the name of God and, and just the enemies will drop dead. That's not what he's saying here. Nonetheless, they say we trust in the name of the Lord our God, his personal name. The I am as he introduced himself to Moses and as he's mentioned right here, God's personal name. His name was evidence that he had put his mark on the people of Israel. That's what they're talking about. When they say we trust in the name of the Lord our God, the name of God revealed to ancient Israel was evidence to ancient Israel that God had chose them apart out of the entire planet to use them as a vehicle for his knowledge and love and light to come into the world. And they knew when they had God's name upon them that God loved them. You know, in Numbers chapter 6, you've, you've heard of this. Oh, there I gave it away. You've heard of this before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You've heard this said before. If you've been in churches for a long time, you've heard this pronounced upon you, probably. And it's a, it's a beautiful blessing uh, that Aaron's family was commanded by Moses to pronounce upon the Israelites. And, and if you've been a Christian for a while, you love this blessing. You still use it upon one another. But we don't keep reading. If you keep reading, this is what, this is what God said. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And I think of one of my favorite Pixar movie illustrations is the reason in the Toy Story movies why characters like Woody and Buzz Lightyear have hope and are driven forward. Because they remember that a child's name has been scribbled on the soles of their shoes. And when they give up, and when they're tempted to forget who they are and what their purpose is, it's because they have forgotten that Andy's name was scratched across the soles of their feet. When a child puts her name on her favorite doll, it is a sign of possession, of dedication, 
and of love. And God's name was Israel's reminder that they belonged to him. And nothing would change that. His love was covenantal. It was based on his goodness and not their own. That's why they said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the fact that we belong to him, that we are objects of his love. And that's what we need going into battle. That's what they're saying. And the gospel of Christianity is this, that Jesus of Nazareth came claiming that he and the Father were one. And in John chapter 16 is recorded these words of Jesus. And he said this again and again. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Christ's name has been marked indelibly upon anybody who will trust him. Anybody who says Jesus I'm going to respect people. I'm going to invest in people, but I am never going to confuse them and what they can do for me for you. I'm putting my greatest trust and all of my greatest hopes and aspirations in you and in you alone. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Because the cross itself where Jesus hung and suffered 2,000 years ago is evidence. It is his mark upon your soul. The name of Jesus on the cross was engraved on any of you who choose to trust him. And that is not a mark that you can wipe off. Nobody can. The psalm asks for God to answer the king in verse 6. The psalm trusts that God will answer their king and deliver him. And actually, God the Father answered Jesus' prayer for our unity, for our salvation, and for our forgiveness. In the garden when he struggled with the reality of his coming death, and then on the cross as he hung there. The God the Father answered Jesus' prayers. Hebrews chapter 5 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews went on to say, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so as Israel asks God to save its king, it is a prophetic utterance. It is a prophetic utterance of asking that Jesus would not be abandoned to the grave when he suffered. And God answered that prayer for David the king and for ancient Israel, and for you. If you are, as the New Testament says again and again, in Christ. His name becomes your name by faith. And when you get his name, you get his righteousness, his perfect record, and you get God's forever love. Jesus is the fulfillment of both our hope in human leaders that goes Unfulfilled, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of our hope in human leaders and our faith in God alone. He was the perfect person and he trusted in the Father perfectly. 
And so your desire and your need to trust and put your hope and expectation in leaders is fulfilled in Jesus. And your imperfect quest and behavior in in trusting in God alone, again, was fulfilled in Jesus. And by faith, you can bear his name upon your soul. As one writer once said, the maker of all things loves me and wants me. That's what propelled the king into battle. That's what reminded the Israelites that God would deliver their king. And that's what's going to remind you that you can get through adversity, whatever it is. Because you have the mark of your creator on you. So I want to encourage you to face adversity proactively. By training yourself in prayer, day by day, throughout your life, whenever you can, with others who can teach you how to pray. Let God be the object of your trust. Let God be the cause for your confidence. Find your strength and take courage and take your direction and your counsel and your direction in life knowing that God has made you his. That's how you start living proactively. Remember in prayer that God has made you his. And if you haven't done that yet, talk to me. Talk to one of us or some of us, and we can explain more about what it means to take the name of Jesus by faith upon yourself. Some people trust in missiles and budgets and investments and medicine and presidents and even kings and queens. But we trust in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we, as we come together to the communion table, we ask that you would impress your word upon us that we would change, that we would find our greatest trust in you, our greatest hope in you. We thank you that Jesus as a man did just that, and now we are going to do it in his name. And we are going to do it knowing that he's already done it perfectly for us. And now we boldly approach you in joy, knowing that we are your beloved children, marked by your name indelibly. And Lord, we ask that you would take these normal elements, the bread and the cup, and we would, that you would use them for your purposes to strengthen our faith, to encourage us as we walk through this life. In Jesus' name, our great Savior. Amen.